Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. Our next guest is a German-born film composer based in LA. He's best known for his work on the highly successful romantic comedy trilogy, Netflix's The Kissing Booth. The sequel was released in summer 2020 and once again achieved a record-shattering number of streams on the platform. The release of The Kissing Booth 3 will premiere in the spring of 2021. I'm also excited to talk with him about the score for Breaking Surface, a thriller that's coming up. And the composer is Patrick Kirst. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. I mean, it's really funny because I've, I've heard your name because I have a lot of friends who went to USC. Ah, of course. <laughs> I remember, I think the first time I ever saw a video of, of you randomly was the... Uh, there was something on Avid's YouTube yes. page uh, for yep. Sibelius. I did. I was uh, testing the software and I was, you know, asked to, back in the day when I think the notation software plugin came out for the Microsoft Surface tablet. And so that's when we started also, you know, uh, testing this. And uh, it was a great experience because the, the whole Avid team, I think a lot of people just came in my into my room, my studio with all the lighting and all the stuff, all the cameras and everything. And it was, it was, it was cool. It was very cool to have them. So, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was great. Also, with my students, I had some students also that that joined me for this little you know test. It was good. Yeah, it's amazing. It was Joe Shirley who works with Ludwig now and Toby who. That's right. Two of the best. That's right. <laughs> it's it's a small world, you know. I'm so excited for them. You know that they you know took the program also at USC. You know where I'm teaching and and then you know they are on their own now and uh, doing really really well. So I'm just so happy for them. For sure. And I mean, it's kind of a joke uh, among composers at this point that like, oh, this person's successful. Let me see where they went to school. Oh, it's the USC program. Yep. And it's almost like a surefire way to to do well in this industry, or, or so it seems from the outside. Yeah, I think we have a very good track record. I have to say, there's a lot of great people, and they all, most of them, are really busy. Uh, if they're not on their own, they are definitely assisting other big time composers uh, in the industry. And I think our big advantage, you know, of course, at USC is that we are in the heart of Hollywood. You know, like we are in the in the heart of the film industry. And uh, like unlike many other schools, you know, like if you go anywhere else, there's there's other film programs you know film music programs out there but i think ours um you know wins because you know we are just because of location alone uh, and that is a big thing you know specifically in the film world where it's such a people's business right everyone knows everyone and you just recommend people and it's like a little family here in la and it's that's that's i really like that mm -hmm. for sure and yeah just out of curiosity i guess with that so um, I was reading up a bit about you and saw that, I mean, it seems like you had a very musical childhood. Um, would you say you were a very social kid as well? 
Ooh, I think I was a nerd, like a piano kind of a nerd. Uh, I when I grew up playing piano, I just um, you know used this as my little you know as my way to to hide in a way, also like to hide behind. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it. So I I think I wasn't the most social, but I uh, I definitely loved um, exploring the instrument and exploring with with music. And uh, I you know like it's. It says it's a musical childhood, but I, you know, I always like to to joke about that because we in our household we didn't really grow. I didn't grow up with with really great music in my household, so I've always feel like man, there's just maybe one record of of a Mozart and then lots of you know other cheesy German folk, and like it wasn't really the greatest, uh, you know, like musical environment. But I think I created my own therefore and. Um, and that was that was that was great, you know, to to start improvising and then improvising different little stories that I made up, and then one thing led to another with theater. You know, I just started experimenting in in the theater world at my high school back in the day, and uh, that was a very good launch for me to try out music for a different purpose. You know, to where music can service this greater thing, like like have a big collaboration between a director and actors and being on the stage and have a little pit band and conducting that and writing for it. So it was, it was a very good, um, I think it was, it was a very good experience. And, and I, I really enjoyed um, that I had so much freedom, you know, doing this. Mm -hmm. There was no one telling me what to do. I just did it. Whatever I knew at the time, I was just, you know, experimenting with that. And it was cool. Yeah. Out of curiosity, was that one album you had? Was that Schlager? Yes. Well, of course, Schlager. I mean, like that's these evergreens, those typical like German evergreens. Of course, no one here would know. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of cheese there. And uh, and of course, you know, then the early uh, classics of the 80s when I grew up in the earlier 80s in my childhood, my childhood with uh, German German pop that came out in the in this new age, this cool new age wave that we had and it was you know it's kind of laughable it's like very corny very corny type of pop but it was cult at the time and then i later on i discovered for example you know all these like led zeppelin and, and even the beatles for me came so late in the game you know to understand you know these geniuses and um david bowie and, and you know prince these were all you know artists that I almost had to explore them myself. You know, no one would tell me, hey, check this one out. Or how about this jazz piece by Keith Jarrett? Hey, he's cool. You should know him. And so there wasn't, I did a lot of that on my own. And of course, there's a lot of, I was, there was a lot of catching up that I had to do when I went to conservatory. Uh, many of my peers, they were way ahead of me. Uh, and what they knew and their experience and their teachings and their their uh, their knowledge. I mean, like I had to really catch up a lot. Gotcha. Was it just you mean in terms of listening to more music outside of the little like bubble you felt like you were in maybe? Yeah, probably. Yes. I mean, they they were just they just had a different. I think openness to well, maybe they had more mentors around early on in their lives or maybe they grew up in an in a very musical family i did not so right. uh, i was the i'm the only odd bird in my family that has anything to do with with art or music or the humanities there's there's no one there like and so i felt like wow okay i guess i'm the only <laughs> the only warrior here to 
to uh, to explore this, and I, you know, I just um, I enjoyed that part also. I mean, like no one was telling me what to do, and so I just I could do it all on my own. But of course, if you're you're losing a little bit of time, you know, like and there was no internet at the time, so mm. you just had to uh, listen, go to the record store, try these things out, try this out, go to the library, you know, rent out CDs and records and stuff, and it was a different time. Yeah. So what was it like? Because um, I think so. You went to Berkeley first, right? College of music, mm-hmm. and then yep. NYU, and then uh, ultimately ended up at USC. That's right. Yeah, I was a student yeah. at USC in the end, also. So uh, you know, like yeah, this Berkeley was more of a introduction. I really needed to know how things and how music is taught uh, overseas, uh, and uh, so I got a scholarship to study there and uh, took jazz classes and took my first film music classes there and had some great piano teachers. Joanne Brackeen, one of the protégés of Bill Evans, uh, she was, you know, teaching me and I, you know, there was way over my head. Uh, I just, you know, it told me and it taught me, wait a minute, okay, uh, whatever I know, I know nothing really. I just it it made me aware that I had to again still catch up a lot on on technique, on harmony, on jazz, on jazz harmony, and there's so many other areas, right? It's like, oh my God, what do I really know here? Uh, and so it's, it was a lot of technique, a lot of craft at Berkeley, and then at NYU, it was a little bit more open to other, you know, maybe a little more artistically maybe open, more of mentorships than. Then concrete, hey, this is a drop two and four technique and these kind of jazz chords. At Berkeley, it was a lot of technique and craft and NYU was, hey, let's let's just try this out now. Let's, let's do something and be expressive and find out who you are as an artist. Find out who you are. Um, and then in, at, uh, at USC, it was just all centered around film music, film scoring, the whole shebang. Uh, it was also very focused and concentrated you know, uh, experience there. And that was 2003, so like many, many ages ago. And uh, the program, you know, has evolved so much. And I, I started then joining, I, I joined the faculty in 07. So it's been a while. So was it like immediately after school? I mean, like what was the, the goal? Because I, I know you ended up doing uh, a lot of work, uh, kind of, I guess, an additional music over time, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it started, of course, with a lot. Of, I mean, like I made a lot of connections at USC, and that's another. It's the beauty, right? You know, you have the, 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 the cinematic arts school right next door to our department, and so we collab. We're just naturally collaborating with these filmmakers, with these young filmmakers, and there's a lot of this. It's a magical time, you know. I just, I think, during my time there, I did, and maybe a little bit after, I, I think it did close to 30 short films, you know, like well, just exploring this art because it was still new to me at the time. I, you know, I, when I did all my studies, I didn't really, I, I, I haven't had enough experience back then as a film composer. And so I did other things, you know, like the classical stuff and the, you know, you know, let some jazz choirs, was singing in some other choirs, was leading this young bands and brass bands and, it was a very eclectic, I would say, upbringing or like uh, training that I had. And um, and so I started pretty much really this career in film music 
after I graduated from USC. And that took a long time. And like you just you start to understand the craft. You do a lot of short films. I think many, I think many of my colleagues, they've all done their fair share of, of short films. And it's it's good because you you learn so much. You know, you learn what works, what doesn't work. You you can try out things and again figure out who you are as an artist, what you like, what you don't like. And then one thing led to another. And I started um, then working for Aaron Zygman who, uh, you know, I think he doesn't need an introduction, like The Notebook, you know, John Q, the Richard Arabithia, I mean, like Flickr, I mean, like lots of Sex in the City. I mean, we, I worked, you know, it was a very cool thing that happened for me because I could look him over the shoulder and see him, how he works with directors, producers, how he takes the heat, how he, um, you know, how, you know, he delegates, delegates work for us to do and, we, it was a very, very eye-opening experience for me like for the first time really seeing the real world, the real thing. And uh, that led to many other opportunities. So um, like one thing always leads to another, right? It's like how it, how it, how it works here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Kind of tying that back to like USC now too. So it sounds like doing a bunch of shorts, like, I mean, you were, you were staying busy. Do you feel like the program, actually maybe even when you were there versus now, uh, connected the film music students with like the filmmakers well and yes and everyone kind of has the same opportunity oh yes that's uh i mean like you mean like how it is now versus back then sure yeah like in terms of the integration i guess between um i think we've streamlined it of course over the years i think nowadays it's actually a requirement for the film students to actually work with our department um mm. that was not quite that was not the case back then back in the day when i when i you know was a student it was more like a word of mouth you know like hey he did you know my short film you should hire this guy because he you know he's good with that or he's good in animation i think i did in one i think i did once like the entire class of the animation class that did one animation after another because it just you know recommended me for for the job and then uh, did all these classmates work and it was of course that's great back in the day that was possible nowadays it's um you really get uh you you know we we have these uh, mixer meetings where you just uh show up uh filmmakers and composers and then they team up already there uh based on for example musical taste upbringing whatever brings a filmmaker together with a composer it could be they're coming from the same country the same state the same you know they know the same football team or whatever i mean like they you know there's so many things that you know that 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 filmmakers why filmmakers connect because maybe they are you know they're into jazz and maybe another film film student is also into jazz so great this is you know musical taste can really bond people um also again you know like language could also bond you know see if you speak the same language you know if it's a foreign language of course i you know i teamed up with also um you know some european filmmakers or swiss austrian you know german uh german speaking you know filmmakers so like that already creates this common ground um and so we we absolutely foster that at usc we absolutely want you know of course we we expect and we actually have a requirement for these film students to actually team up with with our students and some people are busier than others you know it's always like that some people get you know a favorable choice over another composer that's that's the business that's you know it's a very competitive business you know as we all know and but uh, i think every student each student in our in our program really 
get their fair share of experience nowadays that wasn't the case 10 years ago. So uh, I think I'm very, very happy that we, how we have integrated. Yeah, that's really cool to hear. And uh, yeah, I guess to shift now, um, talking about the kissing booth, I love a lot of the music for this one. Oh, and, thanks. Um, I mean, I know you've done some interviews about it, so I mean, I'd almost be curious to start off by asking, like, what are your tips for comedy writing generally? Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's such a interesting, I mean, I almost don't even want to call it genre unless we define it as pizzicato strings and like a woodwind solo oh, as the genre yes. of comedy. But it's like, it's so easy to go overboard in comedy. So yeah, I'd be curious to hear There's a lot, there's a lot, of course, to say, you know, like, um, you know, how much time do you have? <laughs> It's it's really again I learned the the craft of um, how to write under dialogue uh, in a comedy really uh, when I worked with, for Aaron Zickman because he did he was the Mister Comedy you know like for many years now he you know transitioned over to drama and um, he's still here and there does a couple of comedies but he really mastered this craft of you know like really I think the the challenge really is. How can you get really close to the action and the dialogue without making it a cartoon? Um, as you mentioned, you know, like there's the pizzicato stuff, but we are not using it the same way as in a in a Bugs Bunny or Mickey Mouse, whatever cartoon. Um, we are still using the same kind of lightness and the, the character of the instrument, but we are not Mickey Mousing every little event that we see only the ones that here and there they get a little eyebrows raising okay we can you know if we want to if you want to be close to that character okay we, we maybe hit that with a triangle hit or something like that but the the craft and the art i think is really not to overdo it to find this perfect balance to inject just enough fun to make to make the scene funnier without making it ridiculous so that that is this is in terms of craft the real big challenge i mean like if if I compare that to any other uh, drama or uh, the dark side or some or movies that are for the big screen, for the big canvas, it's not quite as important to nail like every other in every other second the, the story beat change. You know, in a comedy, very often we want to be so close to the characters and heighten each little moment or like each each moment of silence in their in their line of delivery like maybe or their tone we want to nail that tone and and i think to nail things like embarrassment or mm. awkwardness or quirky something quirky or something just fun or yeah i mean like th these things are harder to nail or jealousy how do you how do you what does it mean in in musical terms to do jealousy we all know how to do darkness and tension and action and pulse and energy. And that is a very different challenge than, than the bright side. The brighter side is, I think there's, there's a lot of nuance. And I think most rom-coms are lower concept films. That means they are very character driven, very story driven, very detail driven of every little scene, every little thing. And you can, easily get things out of balance as you mentioned that's why in the kissing booth we have of course the pizzicato moments we do but we also have a lot of uh, pop rock uh you know like grooves that that just 
tag along a little bit more rather than really nailing every little thing in the dialogue. Just you know, groove along and then maybe at some important funny moments we might stop the music wait and then come back in again like there's a lot of little tricks you know that we do um so i always you know hats off to everyone in comedy all my colleagues in comedy i really know how hard this is and you know it's it's a very different ball game than than writing the dark side you know so i'm um i'm always like now i'm you know i started working on kissing booth three and Oof, it's a it's a process. It's a it's a rewriting, rewrite after rewrite after rewrite after revision. It's a lot, and you have to get used to these rewrites. in In most dramas, in what I my experience is like, okay, um, can this be a little bit more aggressive here? Can this be a little bit darker here? Can this be a little more tension filled here? I mean, that's these are dream comments, right? This is a dream comment to get, right? For like, oh sure, yeah, easy to do. Um, I feel like in comedy, everything is. Uh, ever so much harder because whatever you do says something quite differently about the scene. And if you explain that scene to someone, what is it emotionally really about? There is a huge catalog that you, you know, that you can list what, what this is really about. Why is this camera angle? Why are we seeing her reaction shots more so than, than his right now. Why? How does she deliver her line? Okay, there's a bit sarcasm here, but he doesn't get it. Or like, like, uh, oh, okay, how does this all reflect on the music, right? There's a lot of detail. Right. And comedy is all about timing, so... Oh my God, just... yes. Finding the right beats, finding the right rhythms. What kind of syncopation do I want? Which temper do I want? Do I want this to be with shakers? Do I want this to be, you know, do I want to use uh, even, do I want to use pizzicato or do I want to use this, do this with a, with a guitar instead? Uh, or maybe with a muted harp? Um, do I use some EDM stuff? Do I use some synths, maybe some pulses? Each and every element that you put in is is put kind of on a golden scale. That's how I always try to explain this to my students. Like, okay. You might have gotten out of balance here because whatever this synth sound has just a bit, a tiny, tiny touch too much darkness. Just take out 2% or 3% of the darkness and you're there. I'm like, these are, are like, move this triangle hit by one frame. Make it one frame earlier, one frame later. These things all make a huge difference uh, in, in, in accumulation. Like each of these little details, when done right, add up. They add up to make this experience uh, very up close, and you're and you're pretty much pulling the audience in by being so up close with your music. It's a it's a fascinating thing for me, um, or frustrating also, very very frustrating, I have to say. Well, to put it in a lighter mood, how about we talk about Breaking Surface then? <laughs> oh yes, yes, a very dark film, but it yeah. just brightens my mood right away. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that happens. <laughs> it's a very different ball game there. I mean, like you couldn't probably pick two films that are that are m more different. Probably like as as a composer to score, you know, like it's one is really up close comedy, and the other one is bigger canvas. Still about the only thing that maybe is similar is that Breaking Surface is also about just two protagonists. It's mm -hmm. not a big Star Wars film. 
it's you know like it's a very uh you know like it's the backdrop is beautiful of course and it's wide it's shot you know in norway with all these mountains and the snowy landscape but ultimately it's a very up close story of these two characters so that's the only thing i would say is conceptually uh close to a comedy but it's also very character driven it's very about what is you know what are the line what are what what's their next move um and so it was a very different experience. Yeah. Any uh, interesting musical tidbits you could share with us about it? Sure. I mean, there's also plenty on that one. This one, also, that's very interesting also because the higher concept a film gets, like high con concept meaning the easier you can explain a film to someone, you know, like if it's like alien, for example. So like it's alien versus humans in space. Okay. This is a one-liner, right? So, like, do that with a with a very character-driven Woody Allen film. It will take you a lot more lines to really explain what this film is, right? So, mm -hmm. the higher concept, in a way, that film is the the more I think really in concepts, in higher, bigger concepts for the film. So, like for Breaking Surface, this was all, you know, there's there's a couple of things that happen here. So, like. It's not really, you see that in the trailer, right? So you have this huge, big rock that falls into the ocean, hits one of the girls, like these two sisters, and uh, and and sucks her to the ground and just pushes her and pulls her to the, to the ground. So she's trapped on the ocean floor, can't get out. The other sister has to find creative ways to get her out. So very early on, the the, the director mentioned these moments spoke of these highly imminent danger moments uh he spoke of them of fire and it's so interesting it's so funny because these things take place underwater right so fire underwater what does that mean so like but he liked that this is so odd you know that, that juxtaposition it's fire but it's underwater there's this burning thing that you know like it's so imminent and so dangerous and so and he wanted something for that. And I looked for materials that would, for me, represent that. And I found brass, the brass in an orchestra to be of that quality. I didn't want that to be synthetic. Uh, I, want this, I wanted this to be organic, but then obviously um, processed. I wanted this, not obviously, but I wanted it to give it some different sound. So I took, we recorded the brass and you can imagine, I mean, like the biggest low brass section you can imagine. <laughs> and then everyone was like playing these, you know, like lots of these effects and slides in the trombones, you know, like this, this, you know, moaning but aggressive quality of just like, uh, like when they're doing this, this very brassy sound. So like very overtone, rich and nasty sound. For me, this was very fiery sounding. But then I put that underwater by just filtering it out. I just, you know, added some plugins and then took all the high end out or like uh, automated, you know, with certain thresholds when you hear a little bit more of that, of that brassy sound and then it's a little bit more muffled. And so like you get a very interesting texture by doing that. And I, I felt that was one great, I think sonic experiment that really worked out well. The other one that the director mentioned was, hey, this sister is stuck on the ground, this this rock down there on the ocean floor. I think, you know what? 
couldn't this be always the same note? Because it's a stubborn note that just sits down there and it's always the same and it doesn't move. So great idea, right? So like I feel like, sure. I mean, like in, you know, we film composers do that quite often. We just have these pedal points, like things that just sit there and you just, you know, a note that doesn't move. But here it has a totally, a total new meaning. All of a sudden this, this rock had a personality in the music. I gave it its own character in the music. So whenever you hear that, that very low, lower note in the brass, you feel like, wow, that is that note that, you know, like that's, that represents that rock that is, you know, stubborn there and will not move. And, and I think that was a very interesting, clever idea of the director here. And so, as you see, you know, we, we, we collaborate on these things. You know, he has some ideas about some concepts and then I'll try them out. And a lot of those fail. Uh, many of them fail. Most of them fail. And then here and there, there's a certain little thing. All of a sudden you feel like, oh, that could be something. Um, and we'll try that, try it out. But uh, it was overall a very exper more an experimental approach. The kissing booth is a very close story approach. You know, you know this is happening. You know, you know the emotional beat in every little moment. You dissect it. You analyze it. You respond to it. Uh, it's a very analytical, very analytical process. And on the kissing booth, on the breaking surface, more like, hey, uh, what if we did this? with the strings and so I have these plugins you know like also on the strings we recorded beautiful live strings and then I messed it all up it was like okay uh, this needs to be more dangerous a little icier and so like I added some pitch bendy effects later in the plugins uh, to the to the string textures and that gave it this very eerie icy cold unforgiving yeah sound that I think reflected for me the this Norwegian landscape really, really well. This icy, lonely, dangerous landscape. There's no one out there. These people are just on their own. And the nature, as beautiful as it looks, also to me had a very almost intimidating or very dangerous quality all of a sudden. In the beginning of the film, it looks like, boah, look how beautiful Norway is, how beautiful this landscape is. And then as the film progresses, Oh my God, these those rocks and mountains are almost threatening, uh, like like are are a threat, and they're just standing there watching. They're not helping, you know. Like it's it's this unforgiving raw raw nature, and I think I also wanted to capture this raw feeling in the music. Um, so it's was it was a very um, cr very creative uh, you know experience for me. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I just have one more question for you before going on to the last segment for the podcast. But sure. I think I saw on your website in IMDb that you don't have a manager or an agent and you've just been uh, independent, ah. right? I I was with someone. I was with actually two different ones. And then we, you know, separated, um, you know, a couple of years ago. And ever since then, I've been actually quite, you know, happy uh, the way things are right now and uh you know I'm very busy i i guess things also you know tell you a little bit that the word of mouth and how you get recommended at some point there's this critical mass i've that's how i want to call it and once you have that in your projects and and what you've done 
there's a certain thing that um, um, propels you or like or, or attracts more and more projects uh, to to you. You know, with a with a critical mass that you have on projects and credits, uh, more and more people know about these credits, and your network is growing naturally, of course, at some point. I wouldn't say no to an agent also on, on one of the next bigger projects because at some point projects, The Kissing with Ori was one of those projects. I feel like, man, I shouldn't, you know, I don't really want to uh, just be agent-less, you know, because these projects get a bit too big right now to just negotiate that on, on, on your own. So come time, come another agent, you know, like I, I know. Right now, there's a there's a transitional for me. I feel this is a transitional period right now, but I also love having PR right now. Some PR campaigns and like and then that's you know that's also very very good to just gain more visibility as a composer and uh, and so just you know walking the walk and uh, you know just uh, doing trying to do you know a good job and good work and 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 see and hope that spreads and and reaches people right yeah because there's like this misconception i think that like you need an agent to get you work where it's sometimes the other way around too <laughs> um it's a that's that's good what you're saying i i think you there's this notion also you uh you get an agent when you don't need one anymore mm. so that is uh, yeah i think um there's some little truth to that. Um, of course, it's a business. You don't have to, should never forget that because entertainment is a business. People are making money off these films. And so it's obviously in the best interest of an agent to, to have a composer that already attracts a lot of big projects where they are also making a lot of money. So uh, for an agent to sign all these uh, newcomers it's like a lottery, like who's going to actually, you know, how much energy and time do they invest into all of these newcomers? And they don't know. There's no guarantee that any of these will actually make it. So for, for an agent, of course, it makes more sense if you already have bigger, bigger blockbuster hits uh, on your credit belt, you know, like so it's, um, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just happy that, again, that, that are in the mix uh, of all these of all these composers, some of them have agents, some of them are right now agentless. Um, it's yeah, I mean, like at some point, I also believe what you're saying to get to the very up higher higher level, um, big projects. You definitely, you definitely can't do that on your own. You definitely need the help of an agent. And once these things happen also, I mean, I'm always happy then to reach out to agents and like, hey, uh, this is way over my head. I, I can't negotiate that at that point anymore. But uh, if you look around, there's so many composers out there. Um, so many of them don't have agents. And they're doing all these Netflix shows. And that's, I think that's also cool. I mean, like that's that's also part of the business. The business is changing so much and, the theater, the theater world is, you know, movie theater world is is also at it's odd right now, right? So, where is this gonna go? Are we all like are all these composers, you know, like just doing streaming work from now on and maybe smaller budget projects? It's 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 still an unknown, I'd say at this point, how things will develop in the in the years to come. But um, 
I'm just happy that yeah, I can do this every day and I'm still blessed with work. So it's a, it's a good thing for me. Yeah. Well, I guess with that, we'll go on to the last segment for the podcast, a segment called Tech Talk, where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. <laughs> um, it's interesting because I'm, I'm also teaching this, this course, um, a tech course on you know, how to use a DAW and all that at USC. And for me, technology, and of course for all my colleagues probably as well, would agree that it's just, of course, not a tool anymore just to you know get your ideas into a computer. Of course, technology has influenced us composers so much uh, in, in how we conceive scores and how we actually approach a score. And I, and I think uh, technology is, is, is part of everyone's palette. It's part of everyone's staple sound. This is how we do this stuff. This is how we actually also define ourselves and make ourselves sound sound different from from another composer because these sound palettes that I'm using or these plugins and these things that I use they are now a very step sub substantial and very important part of your of your palette so I I do see technology as a big chance also of course it can be a curse um, also I feel uh, if you're just like following what the technology tells you to write that's wrong so I think you have to be uh, cautious that that doesn't happen that you're still in control that you might have certain sounds and and whatever as an inspiration but I think that you then deviate from from that deviate from presets uh, or create your own like or get a preset and say like okay that's an interesting sonic world let me recreate that uh, I, I think this is a much healthier way I think to deal with um, with these presets and and all these plugins in this forest and this jungle of 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 soft synths and plugins and it's crazy right what's out there and everyone pretty much has access to the same stuff and most composers have a lot of stuff and and I think I I have a lot I you know I I, I love of course what I have I also of course love my hardware gear uh, there's some Moog synthesizers around me and even a little drum machine and I'm, I'm I'm happy with a very simplified setup but again it's it's all about what you then do with that you know you can you can exploit one synth for a long time until you've really ex ex exploited its capabilities it will take a long time and I have this sub 37 this moke you know like it's a great synth I'm like oh my god I'm using it right now in a documentary extensively is together with the uh, Moog, the DFAM and the Mother32. But hey, have I tried all these patches right now and the patch base that, that you know, all these sound capabilities? No, no. I mean, I'm still some, the kid in the candy store and trying these things out. I, I've come up with new, new sounds that I've never heard. And so I think technology is a wonderful, beautiful tool uh, to to find out also who you are as an artist nowadays. Uh, it has shaped us. It has shaped this industry so much. And I can only recommend to be on that wave and ride this wave, uh, and uh, you know every you know every day and 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 see where it leads you, where it you know where where it takes you. And so uh, I think that would be my last words of wisdom here. Amazing. Well, on that, do you want to tell everyone what uh, what else you might have coming up? 
Sure, Kissing Booth 3 right now, of course, that will get me into the end of March. I can't work simultaneously. I, I have one other project, which is a documentary, uh, is, which is on uh, CNN uh, camera women uh, back in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. You know, it's, it, it, it documents and chronicles a little bit there, you know, uh, them, you know, working and carrying all these cameras and working and shooting all this incredible footage in these crisis areas. So it's it's going to be a very uh, interesting documentary. And then there's two other things uh, also that are happening next year. It's another one is a mini series, um, and the other one is a very cool, I think, Tarantino-esque um, indie feature. So I'm also looking forward to that. So I, yeah, I'm busy till the fall next year, which is. Um, very blessed with also together with UC teaching. So I'm very thankful. <laughs> yeah. Well, Patrick, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Matt. All the best to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.